Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I am Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Imagine having a front seat to the most exciting time in the history of the off-Broadway theater movement, as well as sitting at the knees of the two producers who would change the face of Broadway as we know it. Well, imagine no more, folks, because that eyewitness to history is today's guest. That's right. Uh, A producer, a general manager, a company manager, a confidant, this guest has done it all. And he Here are just a few of his credits. The original Little Shop of Horrors, one of my personal favorites now is the time for all good men, The Faggot, Marry Me a Little, Orphans, Steel Magnolias, As Is, Starmites, The Grapes of Wrath, The Boy from Oz, and so many more. Many, 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 many more. And because this podcast will not give us enough time to truly do a deep dive into his works, fear not, listeners, as he has written one of the most enchanting memoirs about theater called Stages, which you can buy from Amazon or preferably from your local bookstore. Either way, by the book. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Bernie Jacobs, Gerald Schoenfeld, Christopher Walken, Alan Menken, Colleen Dewhurst, Meryl Streep, and so many more, here is 1955's founding president of the Judy Garland fan club, Albert Poland. Albert, how are you today? I'm fine. <laughs> I think I should, after that, I think I should just say thank you and good night. No, don't you leave us. No, I'm just getting All started. Right. Albert, I have to ask, how did the Judy Garland fan club come to be? Well, I, I grew up in Indianapolis um, uh, in a very conservative Republican family. I just innately was not conservative, nor was I Republican now or ever. <laughs> and I had to find ways to survive my family. Uh, I did not have an emotional connection with them. And I soon found show business. And of course, show business at that time, this was in the 40s and early 50s, was the movies. So I lived in the movie magazines um, and and then gradually television came in and and television, the the heyday of television really was from the golden age of vaudeville. All the all the people we think of the er, as the early TV stars were vaudevillians, you know, and and they learned a for the people style that brought them right into our living rooms brilliantly. Um, and I began reading in about 1953 about uh, Judy Garland in the movie magazines co- coming out in a movie called A Star is Born. And she had a, an androgynous look. I did not know the word androgynous, but I could feel it. Uh, and I was very drawn to it. Um, and, and because uh, my Midwestern Republican family had a very undramatic life, I was kind of starved for something dramatic, and, and her life certainly had been dramatic. Um, so I went to see A Star is Born. It was the first movie I went to by myself. And I came in in the middle of it, um, and I, I, I sat through three showings. And at that time, it was three hours and 12 minutes long. It was the uncut version. And I emerged a changed person. I, I, 
And until the AIDS epidemic, I used to view my life as occurring before and after a star is born. Um, mm. After the AIDS yeah. epidemic, I viewed it as happening before and after the AIDS epidemic. Mm. Um, uh, my parents, had, you know, since I had been missing for 10 hours, had called the police. Oh, <laughs> that was what you did in the Midwest. <laughs> right. It was like nine at 10 hours. A few minutes late coming home. We call the police. <laughs> and what I like to say is they called the police, but it was too late. I had escaped. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I saw Judy on the screen. I was thunderstruck with her. Uh, mm. I thought she was the most talented person I had ever seen, which, by the way, I still think. Mm. I also thought that she <laughs> needed my help. Ah, very good. I think I think that is one of the things that really draws us to Judy Garland like a magnet. We feel needed by this genius that is, that is mesmerizing us. We feel that she needs us. Um, yeah. And I, I, I went about, thought about to join a fan club for her. And I found out there wasn't any, which I was just astonished. I thought there would be multitudes of them. And so I started one. I, I, I sent away for a book on how you start a fan club. And uh, I read the book and, and fan clubs were, you know, I used to think they were like screaming teenagers. They were political organizations. Uh, they published four journals a year about the star. And in each journal was the name and address of three movie magazines. Mm. And the members were asked to write to those magazines requesting covers and features on the star. So it was political. Right. Um, wow. And, and, and the members were asked to write, you know, not just one letter, but letters signed by other names. We would send them to other cities so that the postmarks would be from all over the place, you know, really bombard. Um, and eventually, you know, when I did have the club, uh, there was no Xerox in those days. The members sent me carbon copies of the letters that they sent. And whoever sent the most got a small prize, which I purchased uh, with my allowance um, and uh, and a note from Judy, you know, thanking them, a handwritten note. And the way I handled that was I would send Judy a dummy of what I, I wanted her to say in the note and she would send me back the note, you know. Um, but how did you get in contact with her? How did you? Well, here's what happened. Um I soon found out that, that we couldn't get our address listed in the movie magazines unless we had a letter from the star. Um, so I began sending letters, asking, and, you know, got nowhere. And after about four months, we had three members, and we had a meeting in my house one Saturday afternoon when my parents were out. And, and, and I, we were going to either disband the club or think of some other way of doing things. And one of the girls said, why don't we call her on the phone, you know? <laughs> I thought, yes, why don't we call her on the phone? So I typed up a script because, you know, I was very scared. And um, we didn't have a phone number, obviously. But we, but in, in 1955, an, a long-distance call was a major event. You know, if there were like two in a year in a family, it would be amazing, you know. Uh, and, and just a long-distance call carried weight of its own by being a long-distance call. So anyway, we, you know, I had a list of places in Hollywood for her phone number and we finally got it from Warner Brothers. You know, I remember saying to the operator, call Warner Brothers, ask for, ask for personnel. And, uh, <laughs> they gave us the phone number and 
uh, called and a woman answered the phone and, and I heard the operator say long distance is calling for Judy Garland. And I, and and just a moment. And then this low musical voice answered the phone and said, hello. <laughs> and I I read this, my script, which said, Miss Garland, my name is Al Poland and I'm president of a fan club for you. And Judy said, a fan club for me? How wonderful. And I dropped the script and said, oh, Judy, I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked for about five minutes and she asked me for my address, which I just thought was, wow, Judy Garland asked me for my address, you know. And she gave me her address, which was 144 South Mapleton Drive. And um, we talked for about five minutes and I told her I wanted to go into show business and she was my inspiration. And, and two weeks later, we had the letter. Um, and uh, three months later, we had 3,000 members because we got in the movie magazine. And miraculously, you know, as I said, there was no Xerox. So I had to send the original letter to each magazine to get our name in it. And through some miracle, they all sent it back. And I have it upstairs framed, you know, in the guest bedroom. Uh, so I have it to this day, you know. Um, I... And Judy was wonderful, you know. She was just wonderful. Um, and uh, we started. They started a British chapter a few months after, you know, we got underway. And and you know, anytime she was appearing in concert, you showed your membership card and were sent backstage, you know. And she would entertain us in the dressing room. Wow. She, she was always fabulous. She was what? personable, accessible, very funny. Yeah. Um. And and just a joy. And and she made some recordings in London in 1960, and she invited the London fan club to the recording sessions. You know. Oh my God! That's so generous. She was very generous and very kind. You know, and uh, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the photo, but I have a photo backstage. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Oh yeah. It is adorable. It, and, and what an introduction to show business. I mean, to, yeah. to say, you know, to, to have that epiphany, to have that, you know, you're born again with, you know, in the show business. And then to, to have the tenacity to go out and do it on your own. I mean, that is really uh, mind blowing. viewed it as something that had to be done. Okay, so now, Albert, now that you've you've done this for Miss Garland, how do you get from the Midwest to New York City, to the world of show business? As quickly as possible. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Did you do college? Did you go to college? You know, my father was a college professor, mm-hmm. and so it was just demanded that I go to college. Um, I went to Western Michigan, Michigan for one year. I did four shows. And and I and I sat up all night with the student who directed my last show, and we said, "What are we doing? Mm-hmm. We could go to New York and just do shows. We wouldn't have to go to classes and look at rocks being passed around, you know." Uh, and so we both quit. Wow! You know, uh, I, I I quit after one year, and I went to the American Theater Wing. Um, you know, be, be, because. That was my saving thing for my parents. I could save face by saying, yes, he's still in school. He's going to a theater school, you know. So, so I went, they, they offered classes of some sort at the American Theater Wing? I don't they think they school. do anymore. So they had a school. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. This is the it first we've really 93rd, talked about that. It was on West 93rd Street. Um, mm. And they had, you know, Milton Schaefer was one of the teachers. I don't know if you know his name. Of course. Dread the Cat. Yeah. Yes, he taught musical comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a very sweet little small little chublet um 
And Phoebe Brand, who was from the group theater and yeah. married to Morris Kardowski, mm-hmm. she taught Shakespeare. Nell Fisher, who had a company called The Littlest Circus, taught dance, you know. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, Albert, do you remember the first show you saw when you got to New York City? Oh, let me see. <laughs> <laughs> What must that have been? (laughs) Could it have been Merman and Gypsy? Shut up. That is insane. Tell us everything. Tell us everything. Well, you know, uh, I mean, I went to the, they were playing the Imperial then, and I Mm. went there and bought tickets, you know. uh, And that night I went, and the first thing, I was amazed at how small the theater was. Because I was used to all these Buzz Berkeley movies when theaters seemed to go on for miles, you know. The stage was like endless, you know. And I was amazed at how close Merman was to us. And and even, you know, with my young, uh, uneducated age, I could see that she was walking through the park. You know, I was, hiya, Herbie, what are you doing? Nah, nah, nah. You know, and, and she never gave anybody more than three quarters, you know. She never looked yeah. fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and when was sitting at the table, I thought she was counting the house. Um, however, when she sang, unaided by a microphone, and her voice smacked against the back wall, I thought, mm. this is your money's worth. You know, you can't yeah. ask for more than the thrill of this. And I love Merman. You know, even when Merman is walking through something, it's Merman. <laughs> oh, my God. We are, we, are, yeah. we are very envious. Did you co- go to the American Theater Wing determined to be an actor, or did you already have your eye on the backstage world? I was going to be a musical comedy star. Oh. Tony Award and winner I, Albert I, Poland. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I hated auditions. Yeah. I just hated them. I, first mm-hmm. of all, I was mistaken in thinking the people on the other side were against me. We, they were waiting to see me fuck up, you know, fail. You can edit mm-hmm. that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, and that's not wrong. That's not correct. You know, when I did Now It's the Time for All Good Men was my first show I produced in New York. And we wanted everybody to be it. We were sitting there hoping this, the next one is going to be the one, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't good at auditions. Um, and I don't know. I don't. I don't think probably I wanted it enough because mm. because I think I think if you're going to be an actor, it's got to be a life, almost a life and death matter. You know. Yes. Yeah. And you know, and I always, I've always been one to read the road signs in my life, and the road signs took me in in the direction of learning about business, and and I learned about business, and then said I'm going to go back to the theater in the role of a producer and manager and apply these business skills, you know, and that's what I did. And that clicked, that worked. Did did the business skills come to you just by being in the trenches, watching other producers and other general managers, or how did you seek this out? Now the business skills (laughs) came to me. I I had a friend who was an actor named Max Jacobs and his father's name was L.M. Jacobs. His father was one of those sons of poor Jewish immigrants who were here at the turn of the century who started industries and businesses that had never even existed. Mm. Mm. He began by selling peanuts in the banks in Buffalo. It was very successful, so he hired other people to sell the peanuts. Then he, then he added a shoe shine. Um, by the time I caught up with LM, he owned 800 different businesses. He owned the Boston Gardens, the Boston Bruins, oh. the Cincinnati Gardens, the Cincinnati Royals, 
uh, many stadiums and airport concessions all over the United States. Um, He was a powerhouse. You know, I cut my teeth on Judy in terms of talent. I cut my teeth on L.M. Jacobs in terms of a mogul. You know, he was ferocious. He had just acquired the subway vending machine operation, which had been losing money for years. And they put me in charge of doing a survey to find out how the vending machines could be better serviced and filled. And as a result of the survey, it showed a profit for the first time. And, and they taught me the, the inherent principles that you use in any business. Mm. And I simply applied them to the theater. And, you know, my first venture was the Fantastics Tour. And I didn't know. I, I was the advance man. I was 24. I was the advance man. I did. I did the press. Um, never done that before. You know. Well, I had done it for ACT the summer before in Chicago. But um, I, I, they, you know, I went to New Haven. They said, "Now, when is the paper arriving?" I said, "Oh, very soon." You know, I wrote down paper, and I, and I came back to New York. I said, Somebody asked me when the paper was arriving. What does that mean? It meant the uh, it meant the three sheets and the posters and flyers. Oh. Um, you know, so that's sort of I just operated by my wits. You know, and Albert, what are what are some of the lessons that you learned from LM Jacobs that you still take with you today in, in terms of the theater? Um, to boil things down to procedures. Mm. To a set of procedures, yeah. so that you're not operating scattershot. You, mm-hmm. you have kind of a greased machine that knows, okay, this is the situation. Then we do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one, uh, and and to economize, you know, and and as a manager, um, I always said to agents, I would love to give your client everything you want, but I want to keep sixty people employed. <laughs> you know, and and really, that's what I believed. So Albert, you're uh, one of we've only had a couple general managers on here besides yourself. What what exactly does a general general manager do? How would you define that role? A general manager is kind of like an executive producer. Um, <clears throat> I negotiated and drafted all of the contracts involved with the show. Uh, I did the production operating budgets um, and. And because of my particular experience, I was very active in the advertising of the, my productions. Uh-huh. And I, and I uh, frequently uh, advised on talent that I thought would be appropriate. Um, I believe that you want to assemble a group of people who best resonate what the show is about. The mm-hmm. whole group of people lines up behind the resonance of the show. Um, so that's what I did. The, the thing general managers don't do is raise money and they don't pick the project. The producer picks the project, producer raises the money, and, and you know, general managers generally are not artistically involved unless asked, you know. Um, and do you like to be asked? Yeah, it's fine. You know, if I have, if I have something to contribute in that uh, vein, I'm thrilled to be able to contribute. I, I'm very, I, was, I was very collaborative. I loved collaborating. And I love collaborating with one or two real producers, not 25 people who made a living selling Chevy upholstery, you know? <laughs> um, yes. So that's, that's part yes. of why I, I soured on the business. I just I couldn't, I just couldn't, I did not enjoy sitting at a table with 20 people who knew nothing. Can you tell us a little bit about what yeah. it was like when you were first starting out in terms of, you, you got started first in off-Broadway theater, correct? Yes. 
What? Off-Broadway was a community. And, and the people, you know, I started in 67 with Now is the Time for All Good Men at the Theater de Lise. And, and Off-Broadway was this unbelievably marvelous community of very idiosyncratic characters, you know, who, who, who uh, you know, they, they didn't fit any kind of mold of, of, of like a Broadway producer. They were more idiosyncratic than that. And, mm-hmm. and their tastes were meant for a smaller market. And therefore, more unique, you know, uh, because they they weren't uh, they weren't AM radio, they weren't middle of the road, you know. Yeah, right. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I went to the equity negotiations during Now It's the Time for All Good Men, and I, I wrote about it in the book. And I looked around the th- these people, and I said, "These are my people. This is my community." Um, what was it about them that inspired you so much? They were characters. Yeah. <laughs> They were. I thought they were characters. I thought they were talented. I thought they were courageous. Mm-hmm. They were outspoken. You know all of that, and and I loved. I loved uh, the whole. I always thought of off Broadway in my day as an upstart, and I, I had always thought of myself as an upstart mm-hmm. because in my family I was a rebel. You know, and I thought off Broadway was was a rebel, and Broadway was what we were rebelling against in a way. And, and, and would that include like commercialism and stuff like that? I mean, it was more about uh, sort of, I didn't, you know, like I didn't really scorn commercialism. Um, you know, I my t- my own taste just ran to something else, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the mind bender for me was my second show was Futz. And I don't know if you know anything about Futz, but it was the Lamama troupe under the direction of Tom O'Horgan. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It what was, was that like? <laughs> very avant-garde. And, and I uh, signed up. Uh, again, it's a very good chapter in the book. I signed up to be a co-producer without ever seeing it or reading it because, because Tom O'Horgan was red hot at the time because of hair. Um, of course. And that night I went to a rehearsal and I ran out of the theater screaming. I mean, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I, I just thought I was insane. And. And after about, you know, seeing it about eight times, uh, it changed my mind. And I saw it a couple times stoned, which probably helped. Um, probably. And uh, it changed my aesthetic, you know. And, and so I, I, it made me more venturesome. And as I said, after, after getting to see and understand Futz, promises, promises just would never do again. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Gotcha. So now you said this whole community of Off-Broadway at this time was just filled with characters. For you, Albert, who was the most charactery of the characters? The most either eccentric, the most talented, the most what is what plane is this person on? I think they all were. I I, I think it was a tie. Great. They were they were all Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I love you know, that. I mean, I, I I think when you say that, I think of Tom O'Horgan, Al Carmines. Yes, Al Carmines. You worked with a couple times. Lucille Lortel, you know. Um, Albert, can you tell us a little bit about Al Carmines, which is a name that uh, doesn't really come up that much on the podcast, but has contributed so much. Right. Well, the first, I saw a show that was had become a success at the Cherry Lane called In Circles. It was right. Gertrude Stein material. Mm. Uh, and Al was sitting at the piano playing, and he looked like Gertrude Stein. Um, <laughs> and, and halfway through it, I got up and left. You know, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, 
and and Paul Rudd. He was he was in a Boston TV series, and and he was the yeah. Anyway, I didn't know him, but one morning uh, he called me around seven thirty in the morning, uh, and he said, "This is Paul Rudd," and I said, "Oh, okay, hi." And he said, I, I saw a show last night, and it's tonight, so last night, I just, I know about your career, and I think you would love the show. And I, and when he said Judson, I thought, oh, in circles, you know. But I went, it was raining, and I went anyway, and, and I fell in love with it. It was, it was a, a minstrel show, you know, and, um, and the music was just fabulous. Uh, I loved Al Carmine's music. It was rich. It was, it was just, it was nourishing. Um mm. So, you know, I, I optioned it and did it. And, and Al and I became very, very close friends, um, really, really close. And, and, and I was in a couple of shows at Judson. I was in The Faggot. I played mm-hmm. the Don. And I was in Religion. I played Pope Pius XII. <laughs> and uh, we moved The Faggot off Broadway. Bruce Mailman produced it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Al... Al had Al had a, a period of great uh, productivity and promenade is a promenade. Big, yeah, that was the big one. A brilliant piece. Um, yeah. And then he had an aneurysm, um, and and the aneurysm damaged him and changed him, and and he and he uh, left Judson, and uh, and he just his productive years seemed to have come to an end, you know, but. I, I really I, I spoke to his companion only three days ago. I had not spoken to him for 40 years. You know, we had a wonderful conversation, just wonderful. And it took me back to the all that time, you know. And again, it was still a community, you know. And, and by that time, off off Broadway was part of my life because that was where Al came from. Um, yeah. So I began so- to know all of those people. And some people might say, what's the difference between off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway? What, what the, how did that change? Off, off, at, at, at the time, off-off-Broadway was 99 seats or less and had no union contracts. Um, Broadway was 199 seats to 399. It later became 499. Um, and... You know, I did a book about Off Off Broadway, uh, right. called the Off Off Broadway book. We, we spent up all night. We stayed up all night thinking of that title, and, uh, <laughs> and um, so they called me after a few a few months after the book came out and said, "We're forming a group called the Off Off Broadway Alliance, and we would like you to be the keynote speaker at our first meeting." You know, and so it was in some cave in the East Village, and. And I went over there and I stood up and I said, disband. <laughs> okay. I said, what? I said, make this your last meeting. I said, you are giving Actors Equity and all the other unions a phone number. And yeah. you're very sorry. You know, everybody wants to have an upward progression. You know, they want a new building. They want a bigger and better this or that. You know, well, you're making a mistake. You're going to. You're going to kill the goose, um, and that's what happened. Wow! So, how do you think um, the off? First of all, do we still have an off-off Broadway environment today? I think we do. I, I'm not personally that aware of it. I mean, there's a theater company called The Flea, which I think is mm-hmm. off-off Broadway, and it's yeah. be making some noises right now. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, La Mama is certainly still off-off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, the first three were Chino, La Mama, and Judson, and La Mama is the only one that still exists, you know. And How do you think um, the off-Broadway theater movement has changed since when you first started uh, to, to now? Well, I think the whole industry has changed. I think the sense of community has somewhat been lost, um, and I think that relationships which I think were the lifeblood of my career mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in anywhere in the theater have been replaced by transactions. Mm-hmm. I think we just, we do this transaction, then we move on, you know, and there's no building of long relationships and, and a valuing of people, you know, and a valuing of their histories, you know, which is part of why I love that you're doing this, you know, mm-hmm. the valuing of, their contributions, you know, to the industry. I, I really think that has been lost. And and it's really just part of a, a, a direction that all of society is going in. And let me ask you that on the flip side, Albert, what do you think has greatly improved since you first um, uh, came into the business? I was going to say technology, which I think is the enemy. I think theater is about blood flowing in the veins, you know, not lights flashing. Um and I mean, I remember when people like Oliver Smith did did these wonderful sets with no assistance. Right now that now designers have to have two or three assistants because there is technology sitting in front of them, graphs and charts, and I don't know what all that ha- and they have to be you know served. Um, so I would say that technology you know has has improved quote uh, and I and ticket sales you know. Uh, I mean, the, the the ability of shows to have runs of decades did not previously exist. If a show ran 500 performances, it was considered a hit. So I guess you could um, claim that as an improvement if you wanted to, you know. Yeah, but, okay. But, you know, the theater for me has become part of world popular culture. I don't think that there is a theater audience per se anymore. Um, mm-hmm. However... Uh, We'll have to see what happens when the theater comes back after the COVID pandemic, um, because perhaps it's going to cause prices to go down and maybe a theater audience will return or be reborn, which I think that's very optimistic. Yeah, let's let's hope. Hello, this is Betty Davis, not the young one. The old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. 
The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So now, Albert, we're going to jump back a little bit, and we're going to Kevin. Do you want to talk about one of your favorite shows, which is the, the show that <laughs> yeah. Albert was the co-producer on? Yeah, we talked. You mentioned already. Uh, now is the time for all good men. Uh, how did this come into your orbit? I mean, you know, you, I, you know, off, off, off Broadway was a world, but it wasn't like a club. It wasn't you like you knocked on a door and you you found you know the criers and stuff. So how did how did you meet the you know them and how did that you know how did you become a producer? I guess for well, that show David, specifically. David, David and Gretchen and I did summer stock together at a theater. In, Where was that? Uh, in Northville, New York, a theater called Sacandaga Summer Theater. Um, the opening production was West Side Story. David plays Tony. Nice. They took a look at my dancing in West Side Story and made me the press agent. Um, so I got my equity card fraudulently <laughs> for doing press. Um, Great. Variety ran a little squib that said, can he act the part? <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> anyway, so, you know, I thought, I thought they were both incredibly talented and 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 Gretchen played Jenny in our Three Penny Opera. I mean, oh, brilliantly. Um, so uh, you know, we remained friends, and and they went away to work with Bill Ball. Uh, it's the first season of ACT in Pittsburgh, and after they came back, we got together, and and um, it came up that Gretchen and Nancy Ford had been working on a musical, writing a musical. Uh, an anti-war musical, and I was already anti-war, um, and and uh, it was based on her brother, who'd been a conscientious objector. Um, and they played some of the score, and and it coincided with me finishing up my subway years. Um, and and David said, "Why don't we co-produce it?" You know, and I said, "I think that I think that's a great idea, but I think we should try out our team out of town." And so we produced the touring company of the Fantastics, um, which was a success beyond our dreams. You know, it was originally an eight week, eight week college tour, and it turned into two years. I'm so curious. You know, the Fantastics was such an anomaly at its time, right? Um, small cast, small venue, small orchestra. How did people on the road take to that? That were so accustomed to having big, splashy Broadway musicals coming to their towns. You know, that's a very good question, but they did. Uh, and and plus, the Fantastics had been done in every town at least twice. You know, we couldn't oh. find anybody to book it. They said, it's been done, you know. So but we loved the show so much. And David had played El Gallo in New York. Um, and so we did it. You know, we, I think our belief propelled it into success in a way. And and uh, we went, you know, after the college show, we went to New Haven to play the Schubert. You know, and um, <laughs> and you know, we we started our tour with two weeks of bookings in place. I was petrified; it could have been a disaster, you know. But we had faith in the show, and and Maurice Bailey, who was an old vet, old veteran of the theater, he's the one who got um, who got um, Oh God, I'm blanking on his name. The co-star of My Fair Lady, Harrison Rex Harrison. Yeah, Rex. He pushed him on stage opening night at, at the Schubert in New Haven. He was oh petrified, sitting in his hotel room, and Maurice went ran over and grabbed him. And so that was part of his legend, you know. And, um, and I remember when I talked to Maurice over the phone, you know, we closed the deal. I said, "Will you send a telegram confirming 
our our agreement and he said he said young man do you know who i am he said if you show up at my door i'll be surprised (laughs) (laughs) oh funny i like that that showbiz and it it turned out he was the president of the league of new york for theaters and producers among other things Mm. anyway we went to new haven and and you know i stood there and watched 30 people in line at the box office, and I, I was thrilled, of course, you know. And and Maurice came up to me. He said, "Albert, you don't have a thing to worry about." He said, "By the end of this week, your tour is going to fall into place," and that is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. By the end of the week, we had twenty six weeks booked. I mean, it just fell into place magically, you know. Wow. It was all the first class towns, you know, Toronto, uh, yeah. um, St. Louis, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston. You know, um, so yeah. So then you you came to New York, then fully more prepared then to to create their original show. Yes, yeah, indeed. And and we had a credential, right? You know, yeah. we did our backers edition at Sardi's and uh, uh, the Belasco Room, and Lucia Lortel was there. We wanted her theater, the theater to lease, and mm-hmm. and when I told about how much profit the Fantastics had made, I looked right at Lucille. <laughs> Good for you. Play your audience. And, and she looked back at me and laughed, and that's when our <laughs> friendship began. So, so tell us a little bit about who Lucille Lortel was and what exactly was your relationship with her. And what did you learn from her? Oh, we have a yelp. We have a yelp of excitement. Oh, God. Lucille. Well, Lucille was the Dowager Empress of Off-Broadway. Um, you know, she was. she came from great wealth. She was the... Heiress, to her, she owned the the patent on uh, cigarette paper. <laughs> what? Other than that, um, <laughs> and she, and she lived at the uh, um, she lived she lived in the hotel on the corner of Fifty Ninth and and Fifth. Um, I'm blanking on the name. It's not the Plaza. It's Caddy Corner from the mm-hmm. Plaza. But anyway, that's where she lived. And you know, she was a she was very beneficent. She she would fund things that she believed in and and her reputation was made on the fact that three penny opera had a seven-year run at the theater de Lise. you know that made her in the theater a legend you know and and she had a, a matinee series an anti-matinee series that she did and it was very important to her and um she and i had a very checkered relationship uh i i uh <laughs> i adored her but i really uh I really read her the riot act a couple of times and, and lived to tell the story. I started the Lortel Awards. Um, you know, we, we won uh, the drama, we won the drama critic circle award for little shop. And, and I had had a couple of drinks and uh, Michael Feingold was there from the voice. And I said, you know, we'll never win. A, we'll never win an Obie, you know, cause none of us have slept with any of you and, and more than three people have seen the show and we're not in a basement. I said, you haven't given an Obie Award to the commercial theater for about 20 years. I said, the only award you've given in the last 20 years was to Blue Lips for best costumes. And I said, but I want to tell you something. And I looked over at Lucille, who was there, and I said, we're going to start our own awards for commercial off-Broadway. And the next morning, uh, there happened to be a league meeting of off-Broadway league, and and I said, I want to start the Lucille Lortel Awards. And somebody said, do you think she'll allow it? And Paul Libin said, allow it. She'll pay for it. 
So I had, I had meetings with Ben Sprecher, who was her manager at that time. We had several meetings, and, and he came in long-faced to one of the meetings. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, you'll never guess. Lucille thinks the first award should be given to her. <laughs> and I All said, right. oh, I forgot who we're dealing with. And I said, well, I'm going to bow out. And that was the end of it for a year or two. And I suddenly got a call from Lucille a couple of years later. I want you and Paul Libin to have lunch with me at Sardis tomorrow. I want to get the Lortel Awards back on track. So we had the lunch and the loose and the Lortel Awards were resurrected. I really like this woman. I wish I could have met her. You know, someone else I, I wish I could have met that you got to work with was the great Howard Ashman. Can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Ashman? And can you tell us about Little Shop of Horrors? I feel that the greatest privilege of my career was talent. Um, I just worked with extraordinarily talented people. And and I would have to say that I think Howard was the most talented of all of the people I worked with. Howard was a genius. He he was just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, And there's a film, uh, there's a film called Awaking Sleeping Beauty. And it's about the history of Disney animation during its renaissance. Mm-hmm. And how, when how, Howard is on the screen for about 15 seconds, and you realize, first of all, that he's a genius, and secondly, that he was the colonel behind the entire renaissance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Howard and I were both horses. Uh, we got along superbly. We could speak in shorthand. Um, and Howard was, was, you know, I remember Howard coming to my, we opened in July and he came to my apartments uh, and we sat on the floor. He played with my dog and, and he was going through the entire process of Little Shop from, you know, going into production for Off-Broadway on and talking about every mistake that we had even considered. And I would say, you know, Howard, we didn't end up doing that. He said, I know, but you considered it. <laughs> You know, and that was Howard, and yeah. and I have a I have a car a Christmas card that he sent me that is just the most wonderful message in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a real expression of love for me that I cherish. And um, he called me during the production process of uh, Smile, and he said, "I just want to tell you something. I had n- I didn't know what a general manager was, and I had never done a show before, and I just." want to tell you how wonderful you are and and how much I have come even much more I've even come to appreciate you. you wow. um, and I, I visited Howard at St. Vincent's um, during his last days and uh, he was losing his eyesight. And, and um, you know, I said that I thought our little shop of horrors, we became what we had been becoming Mm. And he agreed. Did you know when you started working on Little Shop that it was going to be what it became? What were your initial impressions of the show? Kyle Rennick called me and said, I have a show here at the WPA that 25 producers are after, and I, I'm thinking of you as a possible general manager. And I went to see it that night. You want to know when I knew? On the first chord. Mm. The first chord of music had such conviction and such swagger. Yeah. I, I don't know if you can recall it, but. Oh, yeah. Bum, 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 bum. And, and it just went from there, you know. Yeah. And, and I, 
I went home and I called Cameron McIntosh and I were sharing offices. Uh, and I, he was in London. I called him. I got him out of bed. I said, ha, I said, uh, Cameron, I just saw a show and you've got to do it. You must do it. And he said, call Bernie, you know, cause they were very close. So I called Bernie the next morning and Bernie came to see it on Friday night. Um, uh, immediately. Um, and Bernie called me the next morning and said, well, it wasn't my cup of tea. And, uh, I just sank, you know, and, and he said, it's whimsy and the British like that, you know, and, um, but then he said, but if you want us to come along, we might consider it. So on Monday, strictly to be professional for no other reason, I followed up with a phone call to Bernie. Bernie called me back and said, Albert, I have David Geffen on the line. We want to do little shop. How much will it cost? <laughs> oh, my God. How much did it cost? Wow. Three fifty. Mm. Wow! Can you imagine three fifty? <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a lot at the time, and and we also renovated the Orpheum. We installed a balcony because there weren't enough seats. There were no other theaters available, so we had to take the Orpheum. You had to do it at the Orpheum. Wow! <laughs> wow! I love. It must have been a higher cost for most off-Broadway shows too. I mean, I don't think they oh, were usually right. that much. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. Yeah, Albert. You know, you brought you brought up Bernie Jacobs. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of Bernard Jacobs and Gerald Schoenfeld? My first lawyer for David Cryer and me was Donald Farber, who wrote a book about from option to opening about producing. Um, and I didn't think that Donald was enough of a fighter, you know. And and um, so I decided I wa- I wanted to change lawyers and. And I don't know if you remember from the book, but I put the musicians in Philadelphia on the stage because they forced us to pay 20 of them. And and that's when I first met uh, Jerry. I didn't meet him. So, you know, I I mentioned to Paul Burkowski, who was the general manager of uh, Now's the Time and also of Futs. He brought me into Futs, actually, uh, that I was I was looking for a new lawyer. He said, you should go and see. Jerry Schoenfeld and Bernie Jacobs, they were really impressed with what you did in Philadelphia. I said, you're kidding. He, he said, no. I said, but they're the Schubert lawyers. And um, he said, well, they have a few select clients, you know, other than the Schubert's. Um, so I went to see Jerry and um, we had a great meeting. I had not, hadn't met him before. We'd only talked on the phone. And he said, you took the first round. Let's see what we can do together, you know. And, um, and so the first show, I did with Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld was Futs. <laughs> yes. They came to the opening night. I never asked them what they thought, and they never told me. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were my lawyers, um, you know, and they, they were my lawyers uh, through, I don't know, about 1971 or two. Um, and I... Uh, and, and not only my lawyers, but they were f- friends. Jerry especially took me under his wing at that time. He gave me books on Churchill and FDR. He want, he thought I was going to be the next David Belasco, which <laughs> obviously didn't happen. But I was the next Albert Poland. Um, yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, they were just <laughs> very loving to me, mm. Jerry was, and and I didn't, I didn't really get to know Bernie until Little Shop because Cameron was uh, close, closer with Bernie. And Bernie and I really became close. Um, you know, uh, Bernie, 
occupies a space in my head right next to Judy. They're both present with me at all times. Um, and uh, I love Bernie dearly. I love Jerry too, but but Bernie, uh, Bernie was just a, I think of him every day. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was very, very, very special, very, they were very powerful, but they, they didn't wear their power on their sleeves. Um, and you know, the Schubert's gave me a party to launch my book. Um, yeah, which just was the nicest thing that could have happened. To um, yeah, classy. And I realized I had been with them for 50 years and, 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 you know, Futz was my second show in New York. So, so they were a presence. Jerry and Bernie were a presence in later Phil Smith uh, in, my, in my career, in my life, for 50 years. Yeah. And Albert, what are some of the lessons that they taught you about the business that you still take with you today or that you would like other people to know that you feel you could pass on to them? You know, as usual, lessons are simpler than you might think. Um, Bernie taught me that this is a business. And by saying this is a business, he meant Broadway is a business. Um, if it if the show isn't carrying the freight, you close. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And 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 that was a, a realization for me because because I as a producer I was prone to producing things that I thought people should see. Yeah. You know, and and martyring yourself and bleeding to death because your show isn't doing any business. It's just. It's not the point of Broadway. Yeah. You know, Broadway is a commercial venture. Um, and so if something isn't commercial, it belongs somewhere else. It should be done, but it doesn't belong on Broadway. And, and, and Bernie taught me that lesson. And Albert, you know, every show, I mean, you know, every career has a heartbreaker to it. Is there a show of yours that you really wish it had a longer life that for whatever reason just did not? Well, there are two, and they both ha- took place in high schools. Um, zombie Prom. I love Zombie Prom. <laughs> I, you know, I, I saw every preview of it. I, I, I love Zombie Prom. Yeah. It was like food for me. Um, mm-hmm. And and Nat Weiss, who was the you know the um, attorney for the Beatles, was the producer. He was, and then didn't Cameron McIntosh kind of snatch up two of the writers and take them to London? Didn't he? he? I mean, snatched them up. I talked. I told him about them at dinner. <laughs> Thank you. I so I wanted to. I had a feeling you were probably the, the connection yeah, there because the liner notes of uh, whatever that show was. Cameron and I had dinner together at Frankie and Johnny, and uh, and I said I have these two. You know, this songwriting team, and I think they're superb. Their first show was a flop, but. But I wish, you, you know, I, I, I wish I would like to bring them to your attention, you know. Dempsey and Rowe is their name, listeners, just to say yeah. it out loud. Yeah. And he said, he said, have them send me a tape. And they sent him a tape of The Fix. Mm-hmm. And he called me at seven in the morning and said, once again, you are right. <laughs> that I, I have arranged, I have arranged uh, for the for the fix to be done at the uh Warehouse, is that the name of it in London? Yep, the Donmar Warehouse, yeah. Donmar Warehouse, and Mendy's is going to direct it. He loves it, too. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's how that huh. uh, evolved. And the other one was a, a play called Stupid Kids uh, that oh. Mike Mayer directed. Uh, I, I love that also. It was it was a bisexual reimagining of uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, wow, yes. Wow. Yeah. Brilliant. It was brilliant. And you know, I guess the bisexual was ready to come out of the woodwork because nobody came. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't want to admit it. And and both shows were really good and really beautifully done. 
know. And then we'll then we'll flip the question, Albert. Was there a show that you were working on that you thought, oh my god, this thing doesn't have a chance in hell, but ended up being a, a big hit, a total surprise to you? I don't think so. Here's here's the thing. I I picked my shows. I, I wasn't in a position where I had to take work. You know that happened to me twice. You know, and I took I took shows I didn't really want to do, but I had to earn a living. Um, sure. So twice in forty three years isn't bad. You know. Nope. Uh, but I picked my shows, I picked my people, and and any show I picked, I picked for a reason. In some way, the show energized me, or the people involved energized me. Um, mm-hmm. And and I sometimes pick shows that I did not expect to be successful, but I thought they were worth doing. Um, uh, so I can't think of, I, I, it's, a, it's a good question, but I really can't, I can't think of any show where I thought it was going to be a bomb and it wasn't. Sure. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about a play that I think is a really important play that doesn't really get the credit it deserves, and that's As Is, um, which is one of the, I believe, the first Broadway play to deal with the AIDS crisis, correct? That's correct, yes. How uh, how did you decide to to get involved with this play? What was the impact of the play right in the middle of the crisis? Uh, can you tell us about this production? Well, John Glines, who I think was a great man at the theater, had a gay theater company called The Glines. Um, and his taste was very Catholic. Uh, the range of gay plays that were done was phenomenal. They, didn't, they represented all different kinds of points of view. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, John had an option on as is, uh, and it was, you know, tried out uh, at the Circle Rep Company under the direction of Marshall Mason. And um, John came and met with me, and he said, "I want to work with you, and I and, and I know that you have never done Broadway, but I think this would be your first Broadway show, um, and I would be honored." Blah blah blah. Um, so I went to see it and thought, yes, I must do this. Uh, and I immediately called Bernie and I went to see it again with Bernie, you know, and um, and when it was over, Bernie turned to me and said, we'll give you one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars and the Lyceum Theater. That's very nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, so and Lucille came in with uh, another hundred and a quarter. So there was 250. The budget was 500. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very meaningful time. And, and, and Larry Kramer was doing his first gay play, too, at the public. And Joe Papp, I think, wisely determined that one gay play on Broadway was enough and that they would keep Larry's play downtown. And I think that was a very good decision. And and both plays ran about the same same length of time. Um, I think be, probably because Larry had, has had a greater profile and persona in the press and in the gay community, his plays have tended to be done more than as is. Um, you know, uh, but I do I do agree. It's a, a play that's very dear to my heart, and and an experience that was very dear to my heart. One of the things that we love about doing about this podcast is is learning about individuals that passed away during this crisis, um, who we feel their names should be, you know, remembered and brought back into a spotlight. Are there any people, Albert, you said at the beginning of this conversation, you know, that your life is now divided between before AIDS, after AIDS. 
is, are there any individuals that you would love to bring a spotlight to in this moment? That's so sweet. That's very, very, very sweet. Um, Charles Ludlam, he was just uh, the dearest, dearest, dearest man and, and a genius. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He had oh, the, yeah. the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Yep. Um, and uh, so he would be one. Um, Tom Ion. Oh, of course. You know, I did three shows with Tom. Uh, I did uh, Dirtiest Show in Town, uh, <laughs> Why Hannah Skirt Won't Stay Down, and The Neon Woman Starring Divine. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we, did, we did The Neon Woman at a disco at Hurrah. Um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> It was, you know, fun. it was an adventure. I mean, it's yeah, like, you yes. Know. And and of course, Bruce Mailman. Bruce Mailman was my best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he owned the Astor Place and the Truck and Warehouse and the Saint and the Saint Mark's Baths, and and he was kind of high profile in the gay community. And um, you know, he we were very, very, very close friends. Um, you know, those are those are people who, right? And of course, yeah. Howard. I mean, my goodness, of course. A whole legacy lost, yeah, yeah. or a potential, yeah. 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 Well, th- I mean, thank you so much for sharing those names yeah. with us. That just gives us some context. Well, and thank I, you for asking. I appreciate. Yeah. That. Oh, please, it's it's I'm, I it's very important to us. Now, I think Albert and Kevin. I believe you guys actually have a connection to each other, whether you are aware of it or not. <laughs> I do. I was going to mention this, so, uh, but you might not remember because you've interacted with so many actors. But when you did Grapes of Wrath, there was an actor in there who played one of the older guys. He started in Chicago with Steppenwolf and moved with it. Uh, and, and my son's name after him. He's still very much with us. His name is Ron Crawford, and he was in Grapes of Wrath. And yeah. my son's name is Crawford because my wife. That's that's her grand father and we he's he's very much a part of my life but he was he came to new york because of grapes of wrath which you were uh you were the general manager of and uh and uh yeah and so we have, we have a little showbiz connection ourselves here that's really nice fun. well i remember ron vividly and he's a wonderful artist yes he is that's exactly right he's a, a wonderful he's a fantastic artist that's exactly <laughs> right yeah that's exactly and, right Albert. and i think that he did a kind of sketchbook of grapes that he gave to all of us. That's that's the one. Yeah. So uh, must have been you've uh, you worked steadily. I mean show up to show up to show. Okay. Oh, am I connecting? I'm so yeah, sorry. It's okay. It's Go okay. No, 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 you were you were you're going in and out. What were you asking? No, I was just going to ask about the, uh, this experience of working on such a big show, A Grapes of Wrath with Gary Sinise and stuff, and if you have any other memories outside of my own personal memories uh, of, of uh, working on that show. That show means the most to me uh, of any show. Um, really? Oh, yeah. That, working on that show was a religious experience. Um, Frank Galati is just the most gifted director you can imagine. Uh, it was my second Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ten, I, I, I did a term paper in my one year in college about Tennessee Williams, and, and Tennessee said the theater is the purest form of religion. And I felt that about grapes. Um, and and Steve Ike, you know, who was the head of Steppenwolf at that time, was the engine behind that. He was he was such a, a, a driving dynamic force, you know, and and he kept calling me. I want to I want to do great rather Steve, it will never make a dime. <laughs> you know, I I said, you know, um, 
and he finally just wouldn't let up. And and, and he um, he said, look, the Jujansons, Rocco Landison gave me $50,000 to do a budget for Broadway. Uh, and and all all they want is uh, to look at the budget. They have no strings attached. So I said, um, you know, will you do a budget? And I said, OK, I'll do a budget. You know, so I did a budget and and, you know, I was in bed with the Schubert's. You know, and and I thought I said to myself, I've got to get this to the Schubert's. You know, mm-hmm. so I called I, Steve Ike standing next to me. I called Phil Smith and I said, Phil, uh, I'm with Steve Ike, and he asked me to do a budget for Grapes of Wrath for the Jujamsons. Would you mind having a look at it before I send it? He said, Not at all, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man, sneaky. <laughs> You're a sneaky man, and and you know uh, within days uh, he and Bernie flew out to uh, where was it uh, San Diego or wherever it was being done out there, mm-hmm. uh, and that they flew out there to see it. And Phil called me from the airport. He said, "We're gonna, we want to do Grapes of Wrath." And I said, "Do you think I could possibly be the manager?" And he said, "Why not, Albert? Why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you?" <laughs> So there I was. There you go. Yeah. Wow. What a special time. So now, Albert, what do you, now that there is, uh, we're on this pause for a while, what do you now do to keep yourself artistically fulfilled? <laughs> I take mud baths. Good for you. Good for you. Now, I, I surf the internet. I watch, I binge on Netflix and, you know, all that. Of course. Stuff. And, um, you know, uh, I, I uh, you know, retirement, I, I'm enjoying my retirement as much as I enjoyed my career. And it's the opposite of my career. Um, my career was like going a mile on you know, yeah. a mile a minute for 43 yeah. years. And I wake up in the morning and say, well, today I think I'll give myself permission to do absolutely nothing. Um, I love it. And I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, there are people who have to have a structure. They have to have structured activity. I'm not one of them, you know. And, you know, I have a little house on seven acres. I have a swimming pool. Um, And so, you know, I spend time, not now, but during the spring and summer, pulling up weeds and pulling down vines and, you know, um, just uh, taking pleasure in what I have. Yeah, exactly. And now your your fantastic book, how long did it take you to, to put the whole thing together? And what was the impetus behind it? Well, I would say off and on for 25 years, um, you know, there were periods of five years when I stopped, you know, because I would say to myself, who will give a shit? You know, <laughs> who, who do you think you are? You know, um, but I finally wrote it for myself, you know, and yeah, and the impetus to do it was that I really thought I had had an interesting career. Um, I have a pretty good memory and, and I thought uh, it would be good I've read other memoirs by producers and, you know, so on that I thought looked like they had been lawyered out of existence. You know, and I just thought I want to write a book that really brings people into the process. You know, I want to write an intimate book, mm-hmm. you know, the, the follies and foibles and, and the inadvertent accidents that turn out to be, you know, something spectacular. Um, and, and I think I did that. Um, you know, the book is, uh, I, I'm happy with every molecule of the book. Um, yeah. and, 
And that is such a very wonderful thing to be able to say. I mean, yes, I think it's a little bit long, but it's the book I wanted. Yeah, and for and for our listeners, once again, you know, the holidays are coming up, so <laughs> it makes a great stocking stuffer for the kitties. Um, it's, it's it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. <laughs> I got mine on Kindle. Um, it's really a fantastic book, and what I what I really appreciate about it, Albert, is you know, and. You know, I've read other books about people that are, you know, in the behind the scenes world. And sometimes, you know, like you said, they're very lawyered and they're very dry. This no. is not dull. No, uh, this is uh, your book is so whimsical and so affectionate and yeah. so loving. It comes Enthusiastic. through. It comes through on every page about why you do what you do and why you love to do what you do. And there's nothing more special than that. Well, I appreciate that because I tried to write it from an energy of love and healing. And that, yes, and that does. That's what we need right now, too. And yeah, yeah I was going to say, I think folks, especially at this time where we don't know when theater is going to come, it will come back, but we don't know when it's going to come back. Reading this book is a real nice rejuvenation. And it's a real nice connection to why we are eagerly awaiting for this art form to return. So thank you for that, Albert. Yeah. You're very welcome. Yeah. And our last question for you, Albert, is, is let's imagine that you can talk to that young man that's, that's you know, coming to New York for the first time to, to start their training at the American Theater Wing. What advice do you, would you pass on to them? What do you know now that you wish you had known then? Um, well, the only, you know, somebody said, if you were to do anything different, if you would do it over and wanted to do anything different, what would you do? And I said, save money. yep i really did have a ball but (laughs) i wish i had put some of it away um (laughs) if somebody were coming to new york now i would i would simply i i I think it's a tougher world than when i came here uh much tougher i mean you know i just think that the accessibility of 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 moving forward and getting ahead is not the same you know Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean when i think of you know how I knew absolutely nothing and was able to keep going and keep going and, and learning as I went, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but I I would encourage anyone in any professional walk of life, pursue what engages your passion. You know, anything else is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just important. That's the important thing, whether you, whether you succeed or fail, um, Honor your passion. Find out where it is, what it is, and go for it. Go after it. Uh, because, you know, I'm 79 now, and, um, I mean, I'm looking back on a career that I, I loved. I loved every minute of it, the struggles and the successes, all of it, because I viewed it as a romance. It was romantic to me. Um, mm-hmm. But if I were looking back on something where I had done something I didn't want, you know, a life I didn't want, Oh, I think I'd be in the doldrums, you know. So I'm very thankful to to know that uh, doing what I wanted has has reaped a wonderful reward, you know. Yeah, that's it's, it's amazing, and the reward for all of us listeners is stages. Um, the wonderful book by Albert. So make sure you pick up a copy. We'll also include a link in our description, so you can just click and purchase right there. Albert, this has been a w- Absolute pleasure. We thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time today. I loved it enormously. And I just, I love the two of you. And I just thank you. Keep, keep, keep going. <laughs> that, thank you, Albert. We will. Yeah, we will. You. All right, listeners, till next time. So long, everyone.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Patrick Flynn. What? Beth Amon. I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us what porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petri? I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love you. used to wear shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.